back, everyone. I'm Denise Hummel, and I'm the CEO of Lead Inclusively. You're listening to the Leading Inclusively podcast series. My guest today is Whitney Johnson, and Whitney is an award-winning author, world-class keynote speaker, frequent lecturer for Harvard Business School's corporate learning, and an executive coach and advisor to CEOs. She is a popular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, has 1.7 million followers on LinkedIn, where she was selected as a top voice in 2018, by the way. And her course on fundamentals of entrepreneurship has been viewed by more than 1 million people. Uh, in 2019, she was ranked number three on the Global Guru's top 30 organizational culture professionals. So she is obviously an, in, an innovation guru. She's also a disruption theorist, which is a phenomenal combination, especially right now with what we're dealing with. She's the author of a best-selling book. Um, it's called Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve. And there's also another one, a critically acclaimed Disru Disrupt Yourself putting the power of, of a disruptive innovation of disruptive innovation to work, which are topics we'll absolutely be diving into more today. So Whitney, thank you for joining us today. And before we dive in, I want to make sure I didn't leave anything out. You have so many accomplishments. I can't oh, list them all. <laughs> that is more than enough, Denise. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Of course, and I think most people know that we are both uh, sisters as uh, on Marshall Goldsmith's legacy team of 100 coaches, so we got to know each other that way, which has been an unbelievable pleasure, and you've enhanced my life, and you're about to enhance the lives of our listeners. Um, so I don't want to make this podcast time-bound. I think disruption is, is, is something that is going to exist, um, you know, uh, uh, up and down forever, and, and I think for most uh, corporations in particular, if they're not transforming, they're dying. So disruption, I think we have to accept is, 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 a, um, is a norm and should be a norm. But having said that, we are currently in the midst of, um, you know, the, the, the COVID-19 um, pandemic. And I think that, that people will look, look back historically on this moment, even when we're out of it, and think uh, about the learning lessons that came um, from this experience. So, um, uh, you know, needless to say, uh, there is no aspect of our day-to-day -day lives that has not been disruptive. I, I thought I, I, I would ask you what your thoughts are in the area, you know, where personal disruption can be used as an opportunity for growth and future success as we, as we navigate these uncertain times. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a great question. And let me get just a little bit of a backdrop or sort of context for the conversation. So many of um, you who are listening probably are familiar with the term disruptive innovation. It was, it was coined by Clay Christensen at Harvard Business School to describe a silly little thing that takes over the world, like the telephone did to the telegraph, like the automobile did to the horse and buggy. And more recently, we've seen Netflix disrupt Blockbuster and Uber and Lyft are disrupting cabs. And personal disruption is, is how we put all of these ideas um, and make them meaningful to you and me. And that was a big aha that I had when I was working with Clayton. Um, we had started a fund to invest in disruption. I had this aha that this theory of disruption that we were applying to products and services and companies and countries isn't just about that it's about people and and um it, it helps us understand this this idea that we have to be willing to and know how to disrupt ourselves 
And so <clears throat> I wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review, published a book called Disrupt Yourself and codified a seven point framework of personal disruption. And I think the reason it's so important right now is that my premise has always been that the fundamental unit of growth of disruption in any organization is the individual and that the best way for us to manage through this upheaval, through this chaos is to disrupt ourselves. And so I have the seven point framework and happy to talk through it with you, Denise, if you think it would be helpful. Yeah, I think, Whitney, um, if you give us some context using that framework, I bet that will make a huge difference to our listeners. Yeah, so, so we've got seven accelerants of personal disruption, and I'll walk through them each. I'll give it at a high level, and then we can talk through some of them. As you listen, you might want to say, okay, let's double-click on that one. So the first one is to take the right kinds of risks. Um, that is this notion that we focus on not competing but creating. The second um, guardrail for dis personal disruption is to play to your distinctive strengths, the things that you do well that other people around you don't. The third is to embrace our constraints. There's this tendency to say, well, if only I had more time, more money, more health, whatever it is, then I could be successful. But there's a notion, and we can talk about this, that in fact, our constraints are oftentimes what give us the impetus to move forward. Number four is battle entitlement. Um, this is where we see everyone around us, not as up or down from us, but and not as an object, but as a person. And, and what are the implications for that? Number five is step back in order to grow. So we crouch before we jump, we bring a fist back to punch. Personal disruption is about stepping back in order to slingshot forward. And we can, again, talk through the theory around that. Number six is to give failure its due. This is the idea that um, we all fail. Personal disruption is about failure. Um, it involves failure, I should say. Um, and it's not actually uh, failure that's ever the problem. It's the shame that we attach to the failure because we need that ability to iterate in order to make progress, um, which is what personal disruption is about. And then finally, be discovery-driven, to take a step forward, to gather feedback and adapt. And all of these are very relevant right now, but we can absolutely talk about a few of them that you think your curiosity is piqued on a few of them. Yeah, many of them. First of all, from which book does the, do, do, do these come from? So I can refer our listeners to that particular book. Yes. So these come from Disrupt Yourself. Okay. Book, Disrupt Yourself. And then also we recently did a solo podcast episode okay. for um, people who want to listen to that and spend more time with it. It's episode 153 of the Disrupt Yourself podcast. Okay, great. Great. Um, so I, so it, it's what's so um, special about this is it is so in tune with inclusion. So Whitney, as, as I think you know, uh, our entire methodology is based on the intersection between inclusion and innovation. Mm -hmm. Because when we focused only on inclusion um, in, in anything from our assessments to our learning to our virtual coach app, um, what we got was nicer leaders, which is critically important, but we didn't get nicer leaders leading productive, innovative teams. So um, about two years ago, we shifted to that intersection in everything we do, our leadership assessment and all of our learning. And what I just love about this is that it Basically, everything on this list is um, an element of uh, inclusion. So not competing, but creating, for example, um, embracing constraints, uh, battling entitlement, 
um, and, and, and also being discovery driven among others, right? Because in order for us to move towards uh, inclusive leadership, we have to, first of all, understand what it is, but secondly, not be afraid to try it out. We have to have an experimental mindset. So I, I love this framework, um, and I will, I'll, I'll, refer to, you know, I'll refer to it you know, more often now that you've illuminated it the way you have. Um, so l- let me um, ask you, in, in, can you elaborate a little bit more about how the, the framework contributes to developing um, a high growth individual? Are there examples that you can give us that, that people will have a few aha moments about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so let me um, back up, step back so that we can slingshot forward a little bit. So we've got this seven point framework of these um, in they're either accelerants <clears throat> when things are going well, and they're also guardrails when things aren't going well. And right now we're in sort of the guardrail mode. Um, but the other big aha that we had as we were doing our work is that um, as we're investing, we use the S-curve. It was popularized by E.M. Rogers in 1962. It, we're, we're very familiar with the S-curve right now because we're all about flattening that curve of the COVID-19. Um, but what we want to make sure happens is that that, you know, that curve doesn't flatten us and we continue to think about our own S-curve. And so the insight that I had is that this S-curve could help us understand how we learn, how we grow, how we develop. And so um, what you want to do is in your brain, picture an S. We've talked about these ex- seven accelerants of personal disruption that allow you to move up that S more quickly so you're able to learn. And then when you get to the top of the S curve, leap and then repeat. And that's what personal disruption is. It's this process of how we grow. Um, it helps us understand that we're, when we're at the launch point of that S, we're, we're not going to know what we're doing and we're figuring things out and it's a jumble of pieces. And what's typical in an organization is you only have a few people at the launch point of the S. What's happening in our society right now is everybody's at the launch point of the S. So there's some interesting implications for that of us all trying to figure out, well, how am I going to climb this brand new S curve that I'm on? Then you've got the sweet spot of that S. Let's, 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 let's back up a second and tell people what the S curve is so that when, when you say everybody's at the beginning and now you're about to go, that they really get it, you know, what this is. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So if in your brain, you can picture an S whenever you do something new, you start a new role, you start a new project, you start trying to figure out how to be more inclusive in your workforce. You are at the bottom of that S and it's going to be this jumble of pieces. You don't know how everything's going to fit together and you're, you've just got to like piece it together. And so there are some days where you're like, Oh, I thought this was a good idea, but now I have no idea what I'm doing. And so you might feel kind of discouraged at the launch point of that S. But then as you put in the effort, you put in the work, you put in the time, you start to hit that knee of that S and you move into that steep, sleek back of that curve where you're in hyper growth and you know enough, but not too much. Um, and, and it's hard, but not too hard and easy, but not too easy. And then as you approach mastery, you get to the top of the S, you know exactly what you're doing. Things are easy peasy, but because you're no longer learning, you start to get bored. You start to experience the effects of like, I'm not learning. I'm not getting any dopamine. Now I'm at the top of my curve and sometimes people jump. Sometimes people just get complacent and they stay there. And then sometimes they, when that happens, they get pushed off that S curve. 
And so what I was alluding to a moment ago is that, um, you know, we typically think, okay, I'm going to start a new project, but there's lots of other people on my team who are in the sweet spot or at the high end. But right now, our, in our globe, in our global world, we've got all of us who are on the launch point of that S-curve, and we're trying to figure things out, and there's this jumble of pieces. So that's, that's one example of, of thinking about the S-curve right now, sort of more practical, day-to-day, -day, normalized living conditions, some ways that this S-curve can be used is, for example, if you've got a person on your team, they've been a really strong performer. And um, in fact, Carol Kaufman, who is our, a colleague of ours at MG100, told me that when she introduced this concept, the S-curve, to a CEO that, that she was coaching, he said to her, oh, now I know why I'm so cranky. I'm at the top of the S-curve. It's not that I don't like this company. It's not that I don't like the people that I'm working with. It's just that I'm no longer lean. And so what that meant is that he was able to tease out what was going on and then solve for that by saying, all right, well, what that means is I either need to go do something new, which I'm not going to because I'm a CEO and I've got to sort of play this out. Um, maybe even the owner of the company, in which case you really can't. But what can I do? to push myself back into the sweet spot. Maybe I take on some new assignments, I bring in some new people, I mentor them. Um, we look at ways to expand the business, et cetera, so that you're always trying to find a way to push yourself back into the sweet spot. So that's an example of, of what that can play out, uh, how that can play out in an organization. And what I would say to you that I think is interesting, Denise, and where our work intersects is that this is another way that diversity plays out because if you have an organization that you want to be innovative, you are going to, we're starting to see with our research is that you need 70% of your people in the sweet spot of that S where they know enough, but not too much. You've got 15% who are on the launch point where they're asking questions like, why are we doing it like this? And then 15% of your people at the high end who are able to tether everybody else and say, well, we did it like this for X, Y, and Z reason, but maybe we could look at, look at these sorts of solutions. And so that creates its own kind of diversity in terms of structuring a team. And I think it'll be interesting, actually, maybe we want to riff a little bit about how do you apply this S curve as you're thinking about um, inclusion as well? So yeah, I'll well, stop oh, there. That, well, I think this is absolutely fascinating. And I love, you know, that depiction of percentages, et cetera, because I'm all about innovation, right? So I just, you know, get an idea and, and I will judge myself and others by their ability to have an idea, and but to move it to, to execution with excellence and velocity, right? right? But the reality is if I don't have the voices that are saying, not too strongly, but are, but are saying, okay, Denise, that's, that's fine, but what about blah, 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 and so-and-so, so that I can consider the risk as aspects of it and not be dissuaded, but plan for them at least, you know, so I, you know, I might have, you know, cheerleaders, I might have executors, I might have all, all these different people, but all those voices are important from a diversity point of view. And then switching to inclusion, which is, you know, just as important is, are we hearing all of those voices mm -hmm. and considering them as we move through the S curve and as we move through the process of innovation? One of the things I wanted to just note um, and, and, you know, tell me what you think, but uh, going back to playing to your strengths and embracing constraints. So, 
you know, our strength uh, right now is that we've developed a, a, a technology that is, is game-changing in terms of behavior transformation and habit formation, right? And we developed it for the behavior of inclusion. Why? Because we're a diversity and inclusion company. But as we were building it, our founding client said, well, why can't we use this for any um, you know, behavior, leadership behavior that requires, uh, you know, behavior change or, you know, transformation, you know, sustainability and all that sort of thing. So during this period of time, when my keynote in Michigan was canceled and my engagement in New Jersey was canceled and all these things were canceling, the team said, why can't we slow down, which I think was, you know, step back is, you know, and grow why can't we slow down right now instead of being upset about these cancellations why can't we use this period of time for innovation we have a product that is you know can be used for anything why why aren't we using it for the new behaviors that we need to to embrace the new normal or or maybe they're not new behaviors but they're behaviors that have to be emphasized in a virtual workforce so we literally have been involved in the product development of four new products in the past 30 days that is unheard of we wouldn't have had the time the bandwidth or anything else so there's something good that can come of this it seems to me if you're if you're focusing on these seven accelerants and if you're also conscious of where you are and where your team members are on the s curve it sounds like yeah absolutely absolutely and i you know as you were talking i i thought of a story that might be useful to you as well because it really goes to this question of inclusion that you raised <clears throat> um a couple of months ago we were having a meeting with um uh, several people on our team and we had someone on the team who was brand new to the team and um, at the very beginning of the meeting, they made a suggestion uh, that we do X, Y, or Z. So they're on the launch point of the S-curve. <clears throat> and several of us just sort of said, oh, well, that won't work. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, throughout the day, then we went to this person and we're like, so what do you think? What do you think? And they had nothing to offer. I'm like, what? what gives? Like, what is going on? And so later that day, I had a good enough relationship with the person. I said, you, you didn't ask any, you, you didn't contribute. And they said, well, because when I contributed at the beginning of the day, you shut me up and shut me down. Oh, been there. I was like, I was like, oh, yeah. you're right. We did. They're like, and they didn't say it quite like this, but they said, you need to understand I am on the launch point. I don't know what waters I'm swimming in. I'm afraid that I will look dumb. I'm afraid mm -hmm. that I won't mm -hmm. fit in. You guys shut me down, so I stopped contributing. So what did we do? And this, I think, really goes to your question of inclusion. The very next day, beginning of the meeting, publicly apologized and said, hey, let's just kind of look at what happened here and ask for um, this person's contribution. And then throughout the day, we were all very aware of it. And it is not um, an overstatement to say that they contributed in a very meaningful way. So I think this is to your, you know, all the work that you are doing, Denise, around inclusion is that it's just part of it's just this awareness um, and recognizing that if we don't, it's, it's really to our detriment, like yeah. a huge detriment. Yeah, 100%. And um, uh, 
And by the way, talk about um, innovative. I don't have you seen um, so Price Pritchard's book on hacking uncertainty and the unfolding, the handbook for living strong, being effective, and knowing happiness during uncertain times. I I assume that he wrote the, these a while ago, but I but he, he literally sent me this yesterday. I'm like, did you just pull that out of your hip pocket? I mean, you know, just just as a point of you know either either using disruption you know, or, um, you know, uncertainty to his advantage, or at a minimum being agile enough, um, you know, and to, uh, you know, embrace the disruption and and contribute to um, his colleagues, clients, uh, etc. So that's fantastic. So right, hacking uncertainty, not price, right? He's a prolific author. Oh, it's 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 crazy. I mean, you know, I I I wrote two books and I thought that that was Herculean, and I think he's written like ten or something. I don't know. Anyway, high price. Um, yeah, hello, Bryce. <laughs> we're talking about you. Yeah. Um, okay. Now let me just say this. Um, I'm wondering if you can draw from your expertise and background in stocks and finance. Uh, to distinguish perhaps, uh, you know, the difference between disruption and un- uncertainty, because obviously markets today are ex- uh, experiencing extreme amounts of both. But how do you think disruption can play a role in economic recovery whenever that time comes? Yeah, it's a great question. So let's start with let's start with defining uncertainty, and then we'll come back to disruption. So <clears throat> I think all of us are always engaging in an exercise of how can I reduce uncertainty? Um, we want, you know, we want more certainty, less uncertainty. What's interesting though, is that when you think about it um, from a risk taking perspective, I talked earlier about taking the right kinds of risks and um, there are two kinds of risk we typically think about competitive risk and market risk. And competitive risk is where you know there's an opportunity, you've got the projections to prove it, you have to figure out if you can compete and when. And then market risk is you don't know if there's an opportunity. So probably when you launched your inclusion product, you're like, you don't know if there's an opportunity, but we think there is. And if there is, then you're gonna own that market. Now, what's interesting about this two, these two situations is that even though we know from the theory of disruption that the odds of success are six times higher when you take on market risk, we don't want to take on market risk. And the reason we don't want to take on market risk is because market risk feels less certain. Right. And competitive risk feels more certain. So there's this interesting paradox where you know that if you're willing to play where no one else is playing, you're willing to take on market risk, it's less risky. But because it's less certain, it feels more risky. So, so that's the thing I would say about uncertainty. To your question on disruption, I think disruption, I mean, this right now, what's happening right now, what, what will get us through is our willingness to disrupt ourselves. What's exciting is that because everything is in upheaval, there, the tension is so great, people are absolutely willing to rethink how we're doing everything, including where we're going to work and how we're going to work and when we're going to work. And that means there is this opportunity for those silly little things that seem like they don't make any sense to end up taking over the world. And so 
it's very exciting. In the times of uncertainty, people are willing to take some risks in part because they have to take the risk because of those constraints that they have to embrace. Right. So those are my thoughts on that. Right. So, so here's what occurs to me is, um, first of all, we, we are engaging in what I keep calling, you know, the, the new normal in the sense that at the moment, at least, um, where we are almost all um, operating virtually. Um, you can imagine that um, because of everything that's happening and, and what companies are experiencing, um, reduced revenue, uh, reduced opportunity to, to, to some extent, um, as well as this transition um, you know, to, to being more virtual, that in- inclusion becomes a really big issue, right? Because if you, if, you, if you don't feel that you are included, that you belong, that your contribution is not optional, but actually very necessary to the, prosper- the prosperity in this new normal, what's going to happen is that productivity is going to fall up, off significantly, right? We have, to, we, we have to, as leaders in our organizations, we have to do more to keep people engaged when they're operating virtually than when we're actually seeing them face-to-face and benefiting from each other's energy. So do you have any thoughts um, about, uh, you know, how, as leaders, how we can keep our people um, as engaged as possible as we're doing virtual meetings and virtual interactions and virtual reports and virtual everything? Mm. It's a great question. So we've had a distributed team for a while. Um, and so I think for me, you know, thinking through that, what I will say is that we recently had Callie Yost, who is a work-life fit expert. And one of the suggestions that she made, and I think it makes a lot of sense, is that sometimes when we're all in the office together, we see people and we conflate the fact that we see them with their being productive and actually mm-hmm. getting something mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I think can, I think in some ways remote work, if leaders are willing to change the metrics by which they're measuring success in some respects, they almost have to, mm-hmm. I think that this can work. This can be a boon to inclusion. If a leader is willing to say, here's what needs to get done. And it doesn't matter when you do it or how you do it or where you do it. I just need to know you got it done. And I think that's certainly been a benefit of a distributed team because I'm not like thinking, oh, well, I see them, therefore they're getting something done. All I can see is, did they get this thing done that we said that they were going to get done? So from an inclusion standpoint, the advice I would give is for leaders to be even more clear about what the metrics of success are. What are we trying to get done? How are we going to measure it? And at the same time, be willing to make sure you're checking in with your people. And, um, and, you know, have that face-to-face and, and check in face-to-face over the camera as much as possible. Avoid the phone if you can, although some people want their privacy respected. They don't want to do camera things, mm-hmm. camera interviews. But um, I do think if people are willing to focus on performance of what we actually need to get done, I think this can help inclusion, not hurt it. Okay, great. So, um, so one of the things that just occurred to me when when you were speaking is um, just how much we might take for granted the fact that because if we're in the same room with someone that we are therefore connected 
um, you know, or if we are in the same room with someone, we are therefore, you know, engaged. Um, I can certainly sit here, Whitney, all day long and look right at this camera and my mind be some someplace totally different, even when I'm actually speaking. <laughs> so for those of us who are really good at double tasking. So, um, so I think that's a really, really good point that we make certain assumptions about being connected or engaged or even productive when we're in person and maybe now that we have to rethink that um, to be more specific um, because we're operating remotely, that might actually make us more keenly aware if and when we do return to a face-to-face -face, um, workplace. Um, in terms of, um, you know, uh, you, you, you were talking about measurements of success and you were saying that you know, we have to be very focused on what we are measuring um, and that will change uh, during this new time period, you know, almost certainly. Can you think of some examples of how our metrics for success will change in this new normal? Yeah, I mean, so, so we've, we've started to skate around it and it, there's this idea, I think, you know, having worked inside of offices for much of my career and now having a distributed team for the last five or six years, you know, there is this sense that if you and I are in an office together and we see each other every day and we show up at a couple of meetings and you say all the right things, I think you're being productive. Right. And some people are really good at that, uh, you know, talking, talking about what they're doing or going to do. Um, I think now when you aren't seeing each other, then if you're, if you're, Ideally, you're already doing this as a leader, but I think there's an opportunity for all of us to do this better is to think through what actually needs to get done, who needs to do it, to be clear about who's doing what. And so this goes back to the competitive versus market risk of really defining roles like, Denise, you're responsible for this, Whitney, you're responsible for that, and having clear deadlines of when things need to get done. I think that that is something that in the absence of being able to see people face to face will want something a little bit more quantifiable, more tangible, and that will go to metrics um, or output or productivity, which I think is a really positive thing. So, so basically being, you know, real, you know, having KPIs and sticking with them and using yeah. objective key performance indicators as a measure of success rather than, you know, does someone look productive or behave productively or what have you, which is frankly just, you know, good business anyway, right? Right, um, but it's just, I think it's an opportunity to just sort of see different sides of people almost, Denise. Like, mm -hmm, you know, if, mm -hmm. if I've been really good at water cooler talk or kind of office gossip, people might really like me. But then if I'm not there to sort of trade on that skill that I have, then there are some other things that are going to come um, come available. And then sort of the opposite is true. Let's, let's focus on the positive. If I'm not great at water cooler talk, I'm not great at kind of being social. I might not be, have as much social capital, but now that that's not going to be as obvious, it might come become apparent that, wow, she's really productive. Like she gets stuff done right? and um, where you wouldn't have seen it because you were blinded by the things that she didn't do as well. Now right. there's this opportunity for the strengths and there's this shift, this potential tectonic shift of seeing people's strengths kind of show their face in an unexpected way. I love that. I love that. 
That is wonderful. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, we always say in terms of the inclusion mindset is, is to really avoid making assumptions. In other words, you see someone show up a, a particular way, they seem, I don't know, disheveled or confused, and you're thinking that they don't care or they are disorganized or what have you. Meanwhile, they're experiencing something um, at home or in the world uh, that is, you know, completely different than what you thought. Um, it seems to me, you know, based on what you said, that in times of disruption, it's even more important than ever not to make assumptions about what we're seeing or experiencing in our people. Does that sound accurate to you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're also more willing to not only not make assumptions, but to ask questions and try to understand and to just give people some grace and um, recognize oh, okay, yeah, I mean, like everybody's having a hard time right now. I think one of the things that happens in a period of disruption where it's so um, wholesale is that our empathy is at a heightened level in many instances because I recognize that you're experiencing something, um, but and I recognize that because I know I am too. And yep. so part of you know the human condition is it's hard to be empathetic. I mean, it's just hard. Right. And so, but I, I say, well, I'm kind of going through this thing and that thing and the other thing. And so if I am, and she's kind of a little off or he's a little off, it's probably, oh, yeah, he's probably going through something hard too. I don't even need to know what it is. And so right. I think there's that oppor- opportunity for us to strengthen our empathy muscle a little bit. And then the hope is that, that it will carry over when things start to normalize again. Well, you know, only time will tell if this is, you know, a temporary um, blip or something, um, you know, more, more permanent. I think, I think regardless, we're going to come through this with shining colors. And so therefore there will be more ability or more agility to consider those who, who need to work remotely. This could provide an incredible opportunity for women, for example, who need a more flexible schedule in order to accommodate the needs of young children to keep women in the workforce instead of exiting the workforce. I mean, there's, there's an incredible possibility here um, if, if we can prove out that we can be as productive, if not more productive, in a virtual environment. So I'm looking forward to seeing what this disruption yields. Yeah, me too. I think it's, I think, you know, we were moving toward this work-life fit piece um, that I mentioned a minute ago with Cali Yost and the millennials were pushing us there. And I think this, this crisis that we're going through, which I believe will pass probably more quickly than some of us believe or feel right now, it's going to accelerate that movement to people being able to structure what their work and their life looks like. I think probably about five or 10 years. And I think that's really good stuff. Yep. I totally agree. Well, Whitney, thank you so much for joining us. I, I, we, you know, we're all facing these uncertain and even scary times to some extent. But I really think that um, if we if we sort of embrace disruption with a little hint of inclusion and compassion and the empathy that you've been talking about here today, we're going to grow. We're going to rebound, and when the dust settles, we're going to be even stronger than we were before. So I want to thank you for your insights. And for those of you out there, if you enjoyed today's conversation, please feel free to leave us a, a, a rating and review and subscribe to this series so that you won't miss future episodes. Um, thank you, Whitney, so much. Um, and to our li- listeners, we'll, we'll see you next time. Bye now.